electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. Concerns about the spread of the coronavirus have gripped communities around the world. And economists are looking to history for lessons on the impact of pandemic fears. CNBC's Steve Leisman. Three lessons from history. One, a pandemic is an ever-present terrorist. Can't get rid of that. Two, they mostly don't happen. Three, it takes a very serious and unique virus to have a major economic impact. Michael Bloomberg's campaign advertising budget is way bigger than anyone else's, but it's only part of his strategy for success. The campaign manager for Bloomberg's 2020 run. What business wants is predictability. What business wants is rational behavior. What business wants is a set of rules that they know that they can follow. Plus, remember this. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. In a speech to Morehouse College's 2019 graduating class, billionaire philanthropist Robert Smith announced one of the best graduation gifts possibly of all time. Now, seven months later, he reflects on his donation in an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin. I don't think there's anything more beautiful than a liberated human spirit. What's a good way to liberate 400 spirits 400 years after 1619? Those stories and remembering Kobe Bryant. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Monday, January 27th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand under by in three, two, one. Hugh Andrew. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live this morning at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square in from Davos, Switzerland. I'm Andrew Ozorkin along with Joe Kernan. Becky's off today. Our guest host this hour is CNBC contributor Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Welcome back from Davos. Thank you. First up on today's podcast, an update on the spread of the coronavirus and what health concerns like this one mean for economies around the world. Overnight, Chinese officials said there are more than 2,800 confirmed cases of the fast-spreading coronavirus. The death toll now rising to 81, and the virus has spread internationally, with five confirmed cases in the United States and infected patients in Singapore, Australia, France, and Nepal. China's extended Lunar New Year holiday try to halt the spread of the virus, and we're going to get to Eunice Yoon, who is right now in Beijing. Eunice. Thanks so much, Andrew. Well, I'm coming to you from a very popular entertainment district in Beijing, which is called Sanlitun. This place has tons of restaurants and bars and would normally be buzzing this time of night, uh, maybe not as much because of the Lunar New Year holiday, but still, right now, it is extremely quiet. And uh, what you're seeing here is really being replicated all over the country. Uh, People are worried about leaving their homes and their concerns. So the government has been taking uh, many more aggressive measures to try to contain what they've described as the strengthening virus. Um, Over the weekend, the Chinese premier, Li Keqiang, was assigned the person, the official, to manage this pandemic. He is currently in the uh, city of Wuhan, the hot zone of this outbreak. And this comes after President Xi Jinping had also, over the weekend, convened an emergency meeting when uh, he described the situation as grave. 
Now, uh, many of the authorities here have come under criticism, especially the local authorities in Wuhan. The Wuhan mayor actually just today offered to resign. And this is after uh, yesterday. He said that five million people uh, had left Wuhan uh, because of the Lunar New Year holiday and the outbreak. So that is the uh, bigger than the size of the population of the entire city of Los Angeles. Um, in terms of what the government is doing now, um, they've taken more steps saying they're going to extend the Lunar New Year holiday um, by three days to February 2nd. And then two economic centers, uh, Suzhou and Shanghai, have also uh, just said that they're going to extend um, their um, holiday and uh, they've basically ordered companies not to return to work until February 9th for Shanghai and February 8th for Suzhou. And the question now really is um, exactly how long will companies stay closed? I was talking on the phone with, or, or I was talking um, with Ford, and they said that they're trying to, to decide exactly how long they're going to be uh, staying closed. And then the Shanghai markets, uh, we've been asking them, um, you know, the markets are, when are you guys going to open? And they still haven't decided. So these are the questions that people are asking because there's so much uncertainty right now over the virus. And, and <clears throat> Part of the problem, I guess, Eunice, is, is the incubation period. They're not really sure. It could be anywhere from 1 to 14 days, and, and I understand it's asymptomatic, but you are contagious. So if 5 million people left, none of them showing any signs or any symptoms, you, you can't have a high degree of confidence that, that all those people aren't spreading it somewhere else. Absolutely. That's actually what's adding to the, the, the fear here, because... Um, the health officials over the weekend had said that the incubation period on average is 10 days. It could be as short as one day and as long as 14 days. And that unlike the SARS outbreak in 2003, people are apparently contagious during this time when they're not showing symptoms. So with SARS, once you showed symptoms, then right. you were contagious. But in this situation, it's, it's not the same. And so that's just adding to the, the concern here. Eunice, Michelle, good to see you. Why are you wearing the mask? Is that required? Is that caution on your part? It's not required in Beijing yet, uh, but everybody is wearing a mask here. And uh, the uh, recommendation has been to wear a mask. And uh, that's, uh, again, another reason why uh, there's been uh, such a, um, a focus on the uh, lack of, of uh, protective gear and masks, uh, because it's not only in Wuhan where people feel the need to protect themselves, but uh, now, because of the, the, the fear of the spread, uh, people in, um, the, across the country are feeling that they need to wear these masks. The big question that a lot of companies have been asking is um, whether or not they should stay shut for a longer period than uh, the official, officially mandated Lunar New Year extension. And um, that is really starting to unnerve uh, people here about what the economic cost could be and the economic impact, because it's not only... Um, affecting consumer companies or travel companies, but also the um, potential impact that it could have on the supply chain is, is uh, something that people are worried about, especially uh, for global companies. Okay. Eunice, thank you uh, for that report. Uh, as worldwide health authorities try to contain the spread of the virus, economists trying to figure out what impact it could have on the U.S. economy. For that, we turn to Steve Leisman, who's at the table with us. Morning, Andrew. Economists look to previous influenza outbreaks to gauge the possible impacts of the coronavirus. But they have to factor in vast uncertainties from the specifics of this virus to how changes in medical, organizational, and communications technologies can alter these outcomes. The World Health Organization and Resolve to Save Lives note five separate outbreaks this century with costs ranging from around $33 billion for SARS in 2003 
to more than 50 billion for Ebola in 2013. Over time, and through massive efforts, all of them were contained, though they hit developing countries much harder than developed ones, something the World Bank is trying to deal with separately. Experts estimate the annual global cost of a moderate to severe pandemic estimated at 570 billion or 0.7 percent of global income. All of this is measured against the 1918 great influenza that killed an estimated 50 million people. The United States entered a recession in 1920 that lasted 18 months and was blamed on the great influenza, which uniquely, by the way, hit the working age population the hardest. The World Bank said in its report, estimates suggest that if the world were to face a fast-moving airborne disease such as the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918-1919, it would kill more than 33 million people in 250 days and erode about 5% of global GDP or more than U.S. $3.6 trillion. But that was 1918. There have been dramatic advances in how health officials combat such outbreaks in medical technologies to treat and diagnose them, and maybe most importantly, in communications technologies that warns others of an outbreak. If you read the book by John Barry, The Great Influenza, you find out they didn't know that it was existing in different, for example, military bases. So three lessons from history. One, a pandemic is an ever-present terrorist. Can't get rid of that. Two, they mostly don't happen. Three, it takes a very serious and unique virus to have a major economic impact, Joe. We've talked all about all these things, Steve, and Watson and Crick, 1953. I mean, we can sequence right. the genetic structure right. of this RNA virus almost in- instantaneously and develop some. The one offset is how many flights a day connecting every the, corner the, the communica- the Right, the, the, the inter, interrelationship. The, 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 you can't confine anything anywhere. So, first of all, you want to always be careful say it's different this time, right. right? It may be. It may be different. The communications cuts both ways in a really interesting way. When you read that book, The Great Influenza, it was in one army base. They didn't know it was in an army base. And, and it was in another army base. They didn't know it. And, of course, the, 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 the virus mutated over time. So the communications has the ability. You think about, like, cell phones saving lives in this instance. On the other hand, it has the ability to, spend, to spread panic maybe earlier than it otherwise would. Right? So we all know about it. And so people get worried about it when people, they stop me in the street. They say, Steve, what's going to happen? I don't know. But, but economists have to try to estimate this. I'm, I mean, I'm most... Uh, number one, we, we do know how to handle it a lot better. Even China learned a lot with SARS. Right. But I, I'm most gratified by how much we know about molecular biology and, and how quickly we could de- determine the part of, of this virus that's conserved even during mutation and quickly design, hopefully, either a therapeutic or a vaccine. Attenuated by the idea that it's still going to be Bureaucrats who it's funny are you doing attenuated because that's the kind of viruses we use to, right. for, for vaccines. But, 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 Sometimes. But it's still bureaucrats that are going to be implementing this thing. Yeah. And whether or not they're different is the most interesting to me okay. organizationally have we learned anything. Okay. This one can't get your mind around it yet. I don't think I have. And fans around the world, fans, non fans, everyone, in disbelief this morning after basketball legend Kobe Bryant, his 13 year old uh, daughter, Gigi, Gianna, uh, were among those killed when his helicopter crashed in Southern California. Authorities say nine people died in the crash about 30 uh, m- miles north of downtown Los Angeles in Calabasas. Thousands of fans gathered outside the Staples Center uh, to honor the five-time NBA champion who spent all 20 of his professional season with the Lakers. Uh, the Lakers returned from a road game yesterday. Uh, video showed players hugging on the tarmac and wiping away tears. 
Uh, fans at <clears throat> NBA games across the country wore Kobe Bryant jerseys and observed uh, moments of silence in his honor. I, I didn't know him, but I, I felt like I just saw him because he was back here yeah. for the U.S. Open for the tennis. And I just remember thinking, wow, this guy is so comfortable mm-hmm. in, 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 in retirement and, and so happy and has such a great life ahead of him. And, for, and, and a 13, his daughter, obviously, and the other seven people, it was just... And my son, we were headed down to a, an event. I'll never forget. It's like one of those instances where I know, I know where I you was know where you were. when I heard it. And he said, Kobe Bryant. And I go, yeah, what about him? And it was right at about 320 or, or here. And I'm like, no, 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 that's impossible. And, and it's unreal. So you don't know this. I'm not yeah. sure our producers know this. We were in the process of booking him to be here next week. Private equity. Yeah. On our show. Really? Um, he was a great businessman, by the way, uh, in the past uh, couple of years uh, of, his, uh, of his life. Uh, he had uh, started a private equity firm, uh, Brian Stiebel, um, and uh, had had a very successful exit uh, selling one of his businesses to Coca-Cola, uh, owned a piece of uh, LegalZoom, uh, owned a piece of Dell Technologies, and uh, he wanted to be a businessman. What that's, a, what he, that's what he wanted to be, and he wanted to prove himself to be as successful uh, in business as he, uh, as he was on the court. He talked about that a lot in the past couple of years. Right. He had a, um, a short film that, that won him. Yep. He won that Oscar. He was... Uh, so great, he, just, he was just... He was very competitive, and he always had that drive. You saw that, but it just seemed like he was in such a good place when, when yes. at the Open. He's an ambassador for sports, and, you know, this was tennis in this case, but also big with soccer, and, you know, this was something he was doing with his daughter, who right. was a budding He, he was somebody herself. who transcended yeah. his sport, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, even women who don't follow sports knew who Kobe right. Bryant That's was. A, like right? one of those there, there was shocking... A, there's a quote that he said to Jim Gray uh, that I saw online that just threw me over the edge yesterday. He said... At the end of my career, I want people to think of me as a talented overachiever. I was blessed with talent, but worked as if I had none. Right. I always thought that was really just so um, profound, an idea and a well, thought. Now the business world reacting to the death of Kobe Bryant. Uh, in a statement, Nike, his longtime sneaker endorser, saying, We are devastated by today's tragic news. He was one of the greatest athletes of his generation and has had an immeasurable impact on the world of sport and the community of basketball. He was a beloved member of the Nike family. Disney CEO Bob Iger tweeting, Today we at Disney mourn the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant, a giant in sports and a person so full of life, terrible news and so hard to process. Apple CEO Tim Cook tweeting, I admired his athletic prowess from afar and his humanity close up. He was an original. Kobe Bryant was just 41 uh, years of age. We, we mourn his loss, and uh, we send our, 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 the best wishes we possibly yep. can to his wife. And, and to everyone else of yes. uh, the families in that uh, helicopter. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Michael Bloomberg has spent over $217 million on his presidential campaign. But does his financial status hurt him more than it helps? To the voter out there that says that he's disqualified simply because he's a billionaire, and I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who say that, what do you say to them? Bloomberg's 2020 campaign manager answers that question next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning, and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Becky is off today, but Michelle Caruso Cabrera uh, is still here. Thanks for having me. Mike Bloomberg made his billions creating a machine that hosts mountains of data. Now he's using big data to give his presidential campaign an edge. Robert Frank is with us this morning to talk about all of it. Good morning. Uh, well, as we know, Michael Bloomberg has spent over $217 billion so far on advertising. That's three quarters of the total amount of all the other Democratic and presidential President Trump spending combined now. But while the public attention has been on his TV ads, his biggest weapon so far is digital ads and his use of data and analytics to find and target certain voters. Now, Bloomberg has spent over $34 million so far in Google and Facebook ads. That's more than Biden, Sanders, and Warren combined. And it's all being done through a private company embedded in the campaign called Hawkfish, which is directing a $100 million largely anti-Trump ad campaign. Now, Bloomberg, who, of course, made his $60 billion fortune from data, has hired several tech executives, including former Facebook chief, uh, marketing chief Gary Briggs. Now, Hawkfish helped Democrats take control of the Virginia governorship and legislature for the first time in decades back in November. And now Bloomberg aims to take that strategy across the country. Now, Bloomberg also wants to level the playing field with the Trump campaign, which spent $36 million so far on Facebook and Google and has, of course, been working for four years on voter databases to better refine their messages. People focus on all the TV ads. Right. This is really about Bloomberg bringing the data fight to the Trump campaign, which is very good with digital. Thank you, uh, Robert. For more on Mayor Bloomberg's uh, campaign spending, let's bring in our guest. Joining us now, Kevin Sheiky, Mike Bloomberg's 2020 campaign uh, manager. And and everyone has talked all along, uh, Kevin, that that when you've got that much money and the will possibly to, to, uh, to use that, that it's going to be a game changer. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've been surprised looking at Predict It and looking at some of the numbers. And uh, I know we're waiting till Super Tuesday, but he's ahead of a lot of people already on Predict It, which is where, I mean, it's thinly traded still at this point. But that's what I follow more, more than polls. He's moving up. I love that to what you're following. Uh, listen, I think Mike Bloomberg will be, build the best, broadest possible campaign. And I think at this moment, he's the only person who can actually beat Donald Trump in November. Might be true. And, and listen, part of that is I think uh, the Trump campaign is incredibly strong. I think it's stronger than most people know. There's a new Washington Post poll out today just to talk about how strong he is in the head-to-head nationally. But where he's really strong, and you talked about this, uh, is in digital, right? He has built a campaign which is probably running a decade ahead of anyone else on the Democratic side to meet voters where they are. And they're very smart about it, right? They're not just investing broadly. They're investing in swing voters and base voters and battleground states, while Democrats are in Iowa focusing on a state that ultimately Trump's going to win. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that voters are ultimately rational actors insofar as they say to themselves, who can beat Trump, meaning this is the Democratic base, as opposed to this is who I want? So you're looking at also some of the polls showing, obviously, that Bernie Sanders is going on a nice little run here. And so the question is, but on a head-to-head basis, it gets more complicated. Do you think the voter says to themselves, you know what, I really like Bernie over here, 
uh, this is the guy I really want, but actually I don't think he can win, so I'm going to go for... Does that, you think that's actually no the, the, yeah, the mental no math that actually people do? Listen, you can't generalize all voters, but the most important issue for Democratic voters is removing the president. Right? Now, there are certainly voters who believe that Bernie Sanders has to be president and that he ultimately can beat President Trump. I don't think the but polls Bernie, show that. Bernie Sanders is almost in a different party than Mayor Bloomberg. Outside of an election year, he is in a different party. Uh, Bernie Sanders switches into the Democratic Party for presidential races. Otherwise, he's a Democratic Socialist. Kevin, are, are you counting on a, a brokered convention or, or some? No, I think Mike can win. Um, I do? think there are chances that you could have a brokered convention. But the way that primaries you are You think stacked, millennials, woke millennials that hate billionaires are going to vote for a billionaire? I think, listen, I don't think that any candidate has 100% of the primary open to them. So I'm not going to tell you that 100% of the Democratic primary... But in a general election, I just the, the energy in the Democratic Party, the AOC wing or, or whatever, it seems to be on people like so, Bernie. So I, get, I, I mean, I'm shocked yeah, at Bernie. So, Bernie's now, I'm predicted, right. is, is well above Biden. Yep. So I don't understand. So let's get forward know, to November. I'm ready for anything. Here's what you need to recognize. We yeah. don't have a national election. At the end of the day, this election is going to be fought in six states in November. It's going to be Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. That's it. Right. What, vote, what voters does Mike get that other voters don't get, doesn't get? He gets independent voters. He gets voters who Trump won in those states right. by probably 12 points when he beat Hillary Clinton in the last election. And those are votes that Mike can win. And to your point, Andrew, I think, I think voters will come to realize that if the most important thing is removing the president and putting in a rational actor right. who could be president of the United States, then I think Mike Bloomberg well, wins. Let me ask you a separate question, though. Right, and this was actually, and I don't know if there are lessons in Davos or not to be had, but given where the stock market is today, given the way the economy is chugging along, even those people who dislike the style points of Trump, and maybe even more than just the style points of Trump, whether you think they ultimately just vote with their wallet. I can't tell you how many people I ran into, and I know Davos is his own <laughs> strange bubble, people who historically have said the nastiest things about Donald Trump as an individual, about his character, all sorts of things like this. But then they say, but you know what, Andrew? It's actually kind of working. Yeah, so here's, here's the little secret. Davos is not a leading indicator of what actually happens in yeah, the presidential can, elections. But if you can convince Davos. I know we'd like Davos, to think it was. I heard it. I'm, no, sure, no, it no. Great, I'm sure it was a great week. You that's not I'm sure it was a great week last week. No, no, but, but here's what. But let's talk about the Let's talk about liberalism in Davos. Do you think for a minute that those people who whispered to you, and if you whispered back, but yeah, what do you think about Mike Bloomberg? That they wouldn't say, yeah, yeah, I would support Mike as president. Oh, no. Let's be honest. Here's what business wants more than anything else. And I appreciate where the job numbers are. But what business wants is predictability. What business wants is rational behavior. Mm -hmm. What business wants is a set of rules that they know that they can follow. What business wants is a, is a businessman that can actually increase the economy without the chaos that's been brought. Right. Does anyone think for a minute that if you gave Donald Trump control of New York City the day after 9-11, as Mike Bloomberg assumed oh. in 12 years, that this city would be the By city the way, it is I today? By the way, I head-to-head on a national election, if you just had the business community vote, you're probably right. However, interestingly, and I don't know when this is supposed to happen, do you think that you're going to try to get business leaders, to the extent you think they matter, to actually endorse... Oh, I think they'll matter a lot. Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah, listen, I think that business leaders who talk about the importance of business in this country and what that means are going to be incredibly important in the general election. I just, he's got 90 plus percent, or even if it's 80 plus with Republicans. So some of them might shift to Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. But I worry you about... You know they're Democratic business leaders. I, I worry I mean, about... You, you know that, right? Yeah, but I worry about the, the real heart and soul of the Democratic Party is not where Mike Bloomberg... Is. I can't and tell you he, how... he apologized for stopping frisk. Is he going to apologize to me for big gulps? 
for for trying to to, to cut you down. Can on... Take a pound or two off. I don't know. If you... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not from that. We'll I don't. Work on that. I, I, I only do. I only do. Public health is important. Sugar. I only do sugar free. So right. okay. Well, but I can't get eighteen ounce sugar free really? either. Really? So tell me. Yeah. Explain so that you, to me. You have to go into a movie theater and get a soda this big. No, that's but I don't want someone telling me I can't. If that is your number one issue, you're that's a pretty. That's not. We're gonna have some other ones. All I know are climate change, guns, and big gulps. That's that's what he stands for, as far as I'm concerned. So. Well, listen, I, listen. Mike Bloomberg is a big believer that climate change is. I know. He thinks it's an existential threat. Well, he, 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 he surveys it from it, his who, private jet. He looks does, at all, does the, it, who all the hot it? spots yeah, in yeah. there. Yeah, so Mike Bloomberg the flies around Bermuda. and closed down 302 <laughs> coal plants in this country out of 598 through, a, through a, a campaign that he's led. And yes, if you want to breathe the air that coal plants produce... That ruin our environment and sicken our kids. Well, yeah, don't, now you're conflating, Kevin, you're conflating particulate no, pollution no, no. with CO2. No, now. You can no, breathe the air. 0.04% CO2 is fine. We can bring scientists in to show you the correlation. Okay. President right. Trump made the point on Twitter that, that Bloomberg is playing a game of poker, that he's only saying he will spend money on behalf of, let's say, if it's another candidate, in order for the other candidates to be nice to Bloomberg. Is Bloomberg prepared to spend up to a billion or more on Biden or Sanders right. or Warren if they are that. the candidate. Hey, listen, what Mike said is that he... Or is it a game of poker? What Mike said is that he thinks that this country needs to go in a new direction, that Trump is a dangerous president and that he needs to be removed, and that he had to get off the sidelines because he felt he had the best chance of actually winning that election. But regardless, the goal is the same. I actually think at this point that Mike Bloomberg is probably the only candidate who in a general election... No, they're different can, goals. Can, they're can different goals. The one is, the vote, one is so elect for, Bloomberg, and, so right, and the other is de-elect And so for right now, we are focusing oh, on the that last Bloomberg vote. guy wouldn't let my guess, my it guess weird, is, it? My guess is that in November, we get, we get Joe's vote. No. That's my guess. You won't get my question. To the voter out there that says that he's disqualified simply because he's a billionaire, and I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who say that, what do you say to them? I say that Mike Bloomberg was a man whose father never made more than $6,000 a year, who worked himself through college, who was fired, started his own business, incredibly successful. And if you think about the people you have on this show, who is more admirable? Someone who has started from nothing and literally lived the American dream. Who, for your audience, right. is a greater role model than that? Kevin Cheeky. All right. Working on Joe. I'm telling Thank you. you. I'm going to get it done. You'll call me fat. going to get I'm it not, done. Uh, <laughs> I'll be fat. Next on Squawk Pod, a special interview with philanthropist and billionaire Robert Smith. He made headlines in 2019 for paying off student debt for Morehouse College's entire graduating class. And at the World Economic Forum in Davos 2020, he spoke to Andrew about whether our economic system works for everyone. Capitalism still is the most efficient system on the planet for uplifting humanity generally. But of course, you know, in general we go up, but we have individual pockets who don't necessarily participate. African Americans have traditionally not participated. That interview right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Last week on the podcast, we brought you a few of the best conversations that Joe, Becky, and Andrew had while at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Altogether, the team interviewed over 40 of the world's business and political leaders. One of the interviews that you haven't heard yet, though, a conversation with billionaire philanthropist Robert Smith. He's the founder and CEO of private equity giant Vista Equity Partners, but you might know him from an announcement he made last May to the graduating class of Morehouse College as he delivered their speech. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. I know my class will make sure they pay this forward because we are enough to take care of our own community. We are enough to ensure we have all the opportunities of the American dream. That announcement went viral and so did the tears and cheers that followed. He reflected on this gift and on the economic issues facing our country today in his interview last week with Andrew Ross Sorkin. They started with capitalism. So the big theme here, as we all know, is this idea of the future of capitalism, where it's headed, and this idea of multi-stakeholder capitalism. And you've had lots of success, but you've also had a lot of success thinking about these different stakeholders. So how do you see it? So the dynamic for us is one of necessity and always has been since really the founding of of Vista. And I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, When I think about our world, I live in enterprise software. One of the dynamics enterprise software has done is created massive productivity in companies and existing businesses because it's business-to-business software. You know, that's a dynamic that created huge wealth and, you know, for capitalists, those who held capital in those companies and, right. of course, an opportunity to actually create income opportunities for people who work in those businesses. So that's what you're seeing. You're really seeing that disparity of, 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 of income and wealth driven by the fact that technology has this massive productivity impact on these businesses. And now it's being recognized. And the recognition of it is something people say, oh my goodness, we're saying, you know, for the first, since 1930, the biggest disparity in both wealth and income, and we have to do something about that. You know, in the ESG initiative concept of it, the world of enterprise software, we're actually pretty good on the E side, right? We mm-hmm. generate, you know, we use a lot of power and we also, you know, have carbon footprints associated with travel. But for the most part, we're pretty clean. But it's the S part, okay? The impact of all it, you know, social. How do we actually make a more inclusive environment? Right. We have had to do it by necessity because we need talented people. And if you stuck to the traditional pools of people, you couldn't actually fill the roles and the jobs. I've got 75,000 plus employees. I have 5,000 open recs. If I just go to the same places everyone else has gone, I can't fill those recs. So we have to have always had to open up our aperture for people. And so in doing so, we have the most diverse workforce in private equity, the most diverse workforce in technology by any measure, any standard and objective measure, really across the planet. But when you started doing necessity. But when you see necessity, though, was it a necessity, or did you think that you said to yourself, you know what, I want to do it differently? It's, it's a bit of both, right? You know, the necessity is we needed the people, and if you go to the same places, you can't find them, so where do you want to go? You go to places where you have very smart and talented people who need on-ramps into this economy. And when you look at the world of private equity and software, and our companies in particular, 
the businesses and the opportunities we have, we pay two times the average private wage. So it actually transforms an opportunity for an individual worker in our business. And of course, if they are a stakeholder in the business, a stockholder, etc., it transforms right. the wealth dynamic for them. So we always talk about you know the Trojan horse of our business. You know, being African American, I have the opportunity to actually think about how do I transform a community of Americans, African Americans into this fourth industrial revolution that you and I have been talking yes. about for the last four or five years here. So, you know, part of it is by design and part of, part of it is, you know, an obligation to a great extent right. to actually make the changes that I know are right. Do you think these changes are happening outside of your firm? I mean, there's a lot of talk here yeah. about these things, yeah. but is there a lot of action? You know, the good news about Davos and all its criticisms, it gives people like me and me an opportunity to actually connect with senior executives to affect change. So we developed a program through the Fund2 Foundation called InternX. And the whole point, my career started at Bell Labs 17 years old at an in, as an intern. Well, how do we get more African-Americans and women into internships? So we created a platform, in essence, a matching platform. But now I come here and get real commitments from Chuck Robbins at Cisco, okay, and back in, uh, and John Donovan at AT&T, and, you know, Dan Schumann at PayPal. And just got one a big commitment and get the number yet from AIG. So the whole point is that I can on ramp by having the CEOs commit to you know what this makes sense, Robert. We want to do it. How many? Okay, and John will say, oh, Robert, I'll give you 500 internships. Great. And now we're able to fill those. Now 500 African Americans or women now have a chance to participate in the fourth industrial revolution as interns and then ultimately become full time employees. So it works. It matters. But here's a place where you can actually. Make and it. it's not just hype. No, because that, that isn't. But 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 that is the the critique here in Davos, right? is that a lot of people... Yeah, but I'll tell you, you know, my experience, but I come here on a mission, right? Right. (laughs) So my experience, it actually leads to real outcomes, and otherwise I wouldn't bother. Um, When you think about the idea of capitalism, though, just even the concept in the United States right now, there's a debate about whether it even works. Mm. And I'm especially curious about how you think the African-American community thinks about the idea of capitalism. Sure. Sure, that's a that's a long conversation. If you if you think about it, capital, this whole idea of capital versus labor. Capitalism still is the most efficient system on the planet for uplifting humanity generally. But of course, you know, in general we go up, but we have individual pockets who don't necessarily participate. African Americans have traditionally not participated. In fact, you know, you go look at the you know the Homestead Act, the Southern Homestead Act, you know, redlining around the communities, inability to actually gain a foothold in the capital part of capitalism, and so they've always been part of the labor part, right? right. And that's the mm-hmm. dynamic. So part of what we have to do and what we do do is how do you move them into capital? There's been announcements about how do you drive capital into these communities, some of which are policy-driven, okay? Some of which are actually individual and some are philanthropic. So I think we now have the first time in the history of this planet where you can actually generate capital, not owning capital, i.e. intellectual property, using technology, okay, in one generation. But you have to get on-ramped into this technology revolution. You've got to get on-ramped internships, experiences that actually get you into these right. software companies, these technology companies. That's what I'm focused Do you think young people today in America appreciate that? Especially given the political climate we're in, in which there really is a stark contrast between the two parties and even within the Democratic Party around this idea of capitalism and socialism. I don't think we've done an adequate job explaining to young people what the benefits or profits in a corporation and the corporations haven't done an adequate job taking and showing how those profits improve the community in the station. The good news, you know, I was with Chuck yesterday at Cisco. We are talking about, listen, here's how we're educating and training and dealing with homeless problems in, in Santa Clara, California, one of the wealthiest counties on the planet. But of course, as as people got 
you know, wealthier and that, and that it displaced people. And but how do you now take care of that? The government doesn't necessarily handle some of those issues, but folks who are running businesses can because they realize if we don't make our community sustainable, we will not have sustainable businesses. Right. But we haven't done, I think, a great job as companies explaining the virtues of capital, the virtues of profit. And I, you know, as you know, Andrew Carnegie is a, has been a big hero of mine. We don't go through the gospel of wealth with people and help them understand right. the role of folks like me is to actually drive and manage the, you know, the disparities using philanthropy as a tool and as an instrument to actually manage some of the some of the issues that come from you know capitalism and profit as being one right. of the primary motivators. Uh, President Trump's often talked about um, what he says is uh, record unemployment for, for African Americans in the United States under his administration. Do you think the African American community appreciates that point? I, I think you know if, if you didn't have a job and you have one now, you do appreciate it. You know when did it start? Is it now, etc. But you know, we've got record unemployment. That from what I can tell, that is. True. Now, the real question is, is it just leading to income or is it actually leading to wealth? You know, part of what I think about it is how do you convert that income to wealth? Well, typically in America, it's been through land ownership. What does that mean? Buying a house, having to be for that house to actually appreciate the neighborhoods right. and being able to borrow and use the capital to send your kids to school so they have the next opportunity to increase the capital right. base in your family. So, like all things, it's a great start to get income, but we now have to convert right. that income to capital into these communities. That's what African Americans are looking for. Is like we were, didn't participate in, like I said, with you know some of the the, the, the land grants and the uh, Homestead Act and some right. Southern Homestead Act. That led to a basis of capital for a lot, a lot of non-Black Americans that their their families have been for generations, you know, taking advantage of. Well. The whole point is now: How do we ensure that this this group of folks, African Americans, have a chance to now participate in that in that in that economy that they've been excluded for right. for you know for you know eight nine generations? Tell me about the Morehouse donation. Tell me how you thought to do that. How did it come about? The whole inspiration really comes from you know a, I call it an ideological position around how do you liberate the human spirit. I don't think there's anything more beautiful. And the liberated human spirit. You know, in the work that I do at Carnegie Hall, for instance, we get to about 600,000 kids a year bringing music education where it was taken out of the public school systems. And when you see a child liberated, and music can liberate you, education can liberate you, and in some cases, the liberation of a burden of debt, because you took the initiative to go to a college, to get educated, take on debt, and then your family, your mother, your grandparents took on debt so that you could be the first one in your, in your family to graduate from college, to go get a job, and now you have a burden of debt that may prevent you from actually buying a house for another 20, 25 years. So when I thought about my capacity as a human being, as an African-American, as an African-American male business person, what's a good way to liberate a spirit? What's a good way to liberate 400 spirits 400 years after 1619? And so when I thought about it, I said, this is a good way to do it. There's multiple ways that I thought this was a good way to liberate 400 people and say, the only thing I want you to do is go give back to your community in ways that you think are important. That's why I did it. And how did you decide to do it the way you did as a surprise? Because if you know how it is, you know how you journalists are. If you tell anybody in advance, it leaks and it loses the impact. I wanted these young men to really think about graduating, what it meant to their parents, their grandparents in the audience. When you meet some of the parents grandparents who've come from all sorts, who saved money, borrowed money, you know, you want them thinking about just the joy of them graduating. And then at the end saying, here's something else. When Someone from our community, our community is going to help you. When you saw that joy, what did you think? 
It, it was something just to build. I, I, I saw it on video. I know you were there in person. You saw it right there. It's one of the most beautiful expressions I've ever seen of the human spirit liberated on mass. It was wonderful. Related political question. There have been some presidential candidates and other politicians who suggested that one of the things the U.S. government should do is forgive college debt across the board. Do you believe in that? It's complicated. You know, there are some folks who have college debt for 20 years. And if you forgive it the past, what about the future? One of the things I'm working on now, which we hope to announce, and I'll call it in coming months, I have actually a very brilliant, he's become a friend now, he's actually a former commissioner on the Bush of the IRS, Fred, Fred Goldberg, working on a program where if we do it the right way, we will be able to eliminate the student loan burden for all African Americans who study STEM going to HBCUs. And that's kind of forever going forward. But not how do you deal with the people who have that debt today? Is it fair to them? Don't know. So government can do some things for the past. The question is what do you do for the future? Or you can do things for the future. What do you do for folks in the past with that burden? The short answer is we have a problem. That student debt burden is bigger, I think, than consumer debt at this point. Right. We don't have a mechanism so it's sustainable yet. And the most important thing to lift people in their station life is education. And we have to make it in a way that's affordable and effective. Right. Not just affordable, but effective. And they actually have something to do afterwards that right. can contribute to the, you know, that contributes to society. Right. Uh, technology question that relates to Vista. Sure. Um, there's a huge debate uh, in Washington and elsewhere about big tech. And the role of big technology companies in terms of stifling innovation. Um, not just um, in terms of competition, but uh, in terms of actually the ability, for example, for companies, where, who you're going to sell to eventually. If you buy a company, right. create a company, who are you going to sell to? Mm -hmm. um, do you think there's a problem? I don't. Let me you tell don't. you, you know, we, you know, as big as we are, we're really the fourth largest enterprise software company in the world if you aggregate all of our holdings. The key is aggregating all the holdings. You have 65, we just sold a company today, so 64 software companies. And each of them sells to specific verticals or horizontal and provides specific services to that, that particular instance. The key in my mind as an investor is think about, do we actually have the ability to create value for our customers? And that's the most important thing. On average, our companies have a 650% ROI for the products that we sell to our customers. So there's massive demand for it because it creates massive productivity into their into right. what, what they do. So that's kind of point number one. Point number two, enterprise software at least has a high free cash flow component to it. So while you may not be able to quote unquote sell it going to the businesses, they deliver a fair amount of cash right. flow. So you can always return capital to your shareholders at a fair rate. How much do you worry though that the AWSs of the world, the Google Clouds, the Microsoft Azures are going to start building in some of this type of functionality though into their quote unquote stack? Yeah. Yeah, there, there is there is always that. That's the nature of competition. That's the nature of capitalism, right? And so part of what we have to do is be thoughtful, anticipate, still be best to breed. You know, enterprise software and software companies still are, you know, winner-take-most type of businesses. Those who have a superior product will often dominate that market for periods of time, you know? Right. And we have seen this many times in history. The last time we saw the wide disparity in wealth and income, what happened? You had a concentration of wealth in businesses that actually dominate certain segments. The government stepped in at that point in time. You tell me, was the aftermath worth it or not? Who knows, <laughs> right? But there's a dynamic here where you're actually seeing that because if you are first mover and you've built walls around those organizations technically or through you know product superiority or some execution excellence dynamic, 
you might be in that right. and own that market for, for decades. And the question is, does it make it anti-competitive or does it make it just more efficient for everyone that you serve and create right. a, a, a lift in the rest of the industry? I would argue today, because of this mass distribution of technology, computing power, and connectivity, and now the applications that are part of it, we have as a society on whole benefited greatly. Lifting people out of poverty, education, you know, healthcare, all those sort of things are because we're utilizing this technology well. But not everyone has the same sort of opportunity. We did great on the whole, not in all of the parts. And so that's where government steps in and tries to figure out what it is is the right answer. Or as we as business people thinking about, here's a place that I can make more efficient through investing in technology and R&D. It's a complicated question, but I think, you know, I like the free markets as the best way of the answer as opposed to regulated markets in that context. Robert Smith, you're an inspiration. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Really. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross-Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.